Thanks for listening to the Imago Day podcast. If you live in the Portland area, we'd love to invite you into the life of our community. You can find out what's going on at idcpdx.com slash events or on social media at Imago Day PDX. Oh, good morning, Imago. How are we doing? Good, good, good. Yeah, I've uh, never spoken at Imago before, and that is, uh, that's funny because I'm a, I'm a Portland native, which I'm learning is becoming ra- rarer and rarer. I, uh, my wife and I just recently moved back to Portland. We've been um, in the Bay Area for a little bit, and um, I, I grew up not, not far from here, but we just moved back about five minutes away. And so um, it was a short commute here. Um, good to be with you all. Um, like I said, I, I grew up here in Portland and um, grew up about like a block away from Reed College. And people always say like, you know, what was it like growing up next to Reed College? And I was like, I saw my first everything there. Um, my parents didn't have to worry about what movies I would watch or what songs I would listen to um, because it was all at Reed first. Um, it was like the seedbed of weird. Before weird was cool, it was just weird. It was just weird in the 90s. Um, but yeah, and we're, we're back now, and it's so good to be at Imago because actually, you know, your community has been um, a blessing uh, to us from, from, from growing up in Portland. You know, growing up here, late 90s, early 2000s, some of you who were here or were here at the start of Imago, um, there, there weren't a lot of churches in, in, the, in, in Portland that necessarily I could relate to or my family could relate to. In fact, the way that I came to Jesus was my mom got invited to a church 20 minutes south in the suburbs. Um, there were just, you know, there was no Imago, there was no Door of Hope, there was no Bridgetown. It was a different kind of Portland. Um, it was a different kind of city. And I remember when I was coming to Jesus in my high school years, my uh, then girlfriend, now wife, um, we would sneak away from our suburban church and I was growing up over on 39th and Woodstock and we'd come down to the old Laurelhurst Theater. I was telling Rick, it must've been 2004, 2005 or something, the Laurelhurst Church. And I was like, man, Allie, I was telling my wife, who was then my girlfriend, I'm like, the, the worship leader doesn't wear shoes at Imago, let's go, you know, like, these are real Christians, man, real Portland Christians. And um, it was around that time, though, that I began to see, like, um, a vision, like, through that season of my life, a vision for, um, for pastoring and preaching, but but a way that God's people could live, you know, in Portland. And, and I want to encourage you, you know, it, it used to not always be this way. And to see you all here and to see you here in this building is, is, is certainly a testimony to God's grace. So as I g- jump in here, I just want to uh, encourage you with one passage of scripture as you're entering into covenant community together. If you have a Bible, Psalm chapter 1 is where we'll be, and you can open there if you've got one, and if you don't have a Bible, or you're new to the Bible, or you are estranged from the Bible, we have it up on the screens. It'll be um, ready to go. Psalm chapter one, and as you're turning there, I've been following along with this series y'all have been in on practicing the rhythms of grace. These rhythms that you all next week will be kind of those of you that choose to, entering in together as covenant community. Um, These practices that you've heard from your amazing teachers like Rick and Michelle and Alex and last week Mike Dean on hearing and obeying the spirit, hospitality, Sabbath and celebration, generosity and vocation. These practices, when Rick invited me to preach, I was thinking how can I just encourage you and say y'all are headed in the right direction? What's a passage that might kind of push you along as you look forward to next week. 
That's Psalm 1 for us today, and I hope it encourages you. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1 says this, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. But blessed, rather, blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers, not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment nor sinners in the assembly of righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction." This is God's word, Imago. Psalm chapter one, it's the opening to a very, very big book of 150 songs that the people of God for a long time have been singing. Uh, ever since like the early church in like the earliest record of like the 300s, so the fourth century, we had people saying that this psalm, Psalm chapter one, was like a preface to the rest of the book that to understand Psalm 1 was almost like a rubric to understand the 149 songs that would come after it. Uh, For centuries and centuries, Christians have looked to these first two psalms, and particularly Psalm 1, as a declaration of what you're getting into. What are we getting into? This huge book, what are we getting into and what is its purpose? A rubric, a preface for understanding the whole book. And it starts, Psalm 1, if you're listening to it, with a promise and with a choice. A promise and with a choice. The promise begins with this word blessed or blessed. Now, that's a very churchy word and some of us are unfamiliar with that term or we're only familiar with it the way that celebrities kind of like to invoke it during random times in their life. Blessed has been translated by the theologian Scott McKnight as the happiness and flourishing of a good life. If I could make it plain, I think that blessedness is about this. You're headed with God in the right direction. You're headed with God in the right direction towards flourishing. I was thinking about this word and I think this psalm came to mind for you, Imago, because I think about that with you. You're headed in the right direction with God as you enter into covenant community together. And this promise is headed towards a direction of a choice. And if you were listening to Psalm 1 as I read it to you, there is a choice in this text. There's this choice between righteousness and this flourishing tree planted by streams of water and this chaff or this brittle, withering life called wickedness. Righteousness, Dr. Gary Brashears likes to define it as right relationships with God, self, others, and rest of creation. Sometimes we think righteousness as like piety, piousness, like a religious person is righteous because they're right with God. But rightness in, in, righteousness in scripture, it goes beyond just rightness with God and it kind of overflows into all the relationships we exist within. Wickedness, on the other hand, is this departure from God's will and ways. And these words carry a lot of baggage for us today. But if you were someone first reading this in Hebrew, these would be very familiar terms about those who are in right relationship, they last, Psalm 1 says. 
and those that depart from right relationships with God, self, others, and the rest of creation wither. And this is helpful for me because Christianity can get confusing. Christianity, certainly through my life, I've been tempted to think about who's in and who's out, who's right and who's wrong. I didn't grow up in Protestant evangelical churches. I grew up around the Catholic church a little bit more. And I grew up around Jesuits, and for all the beauty that the Jesuits showed me, uh, and that I continue to learn from them today and continue to maintain relationships with them, a temptation on the underside of the Catholic Church was kind of like who's doing the right thing and who's doing the wrong thing? Who's doing the right thing the right way? Who's doing the wrong thing the wrong thing? And I thought that was righteousness and, and flourishing. That was the temptation. And then as I became kind of more on the Christian Protestant side of things, for all of the amazing worship experiences and enlightening Bible studies that I've experienced, the temptation has always been who's in and who's out? Who's righteous and who's wicked? Who's going to heaven and who's not? And that temptation is confronted and corrected in the light of this psalm. The psalmist here confronts me on this kind of understanding. It reframes the entirety of human existence into an agricultural metaphor. What kind of life flourishes? What kind of life lasts? And what kind of life withers? What kind of life produces fruit? What kind of life doesn't? And that's why the closing verses of Psalm 1, it talks about this group of people, the wicked, will not stand in judgment. And that's weird because you think, aren't, shouldn't they actually be the ones who are judged? But it's almost as if the psalmist is saying before they even arrive at judgment, the life has withered to nothingness nearly. They won't stand in judgment, not because they won't um, ever see judgment, but because they may not make it there. Their life just withers away. And it took me a long time through my journey in Christianity to realize a very simple thing, that Jesus Christ and the psalmist and the witness of Christianity, that the witness of Christianity is simple. It's trying to save, save our lives. Jesus is trying to save our lives. Jesus is trying to point us to a way, him, that will lead to flourishing and not withering. And this blessed life of headed in the right direction, of flourishing, is something to be explored and something I want to use to encourage us today. Let's look at this psalm a little bit more closely, at the way that a life withers and the way that a life lasts. First, the psalmist talks about this way that the life is withering. I said it's an agricultural metaphor. I said the agricultural metaphor corrects my binary understanding of who's in and who's out and who's right and who's wrong. What do I mean by that? Well, the Bible loves agricultural metaphors. I grew up, like I said, not far from here. I grew up taking the TriMet bus. I know nothing about agriculture. And it was before all of us in Portland got chickens. Like, I don't know anything about chaff. I have to study it for you. But these metaphors matter. We must maintain them as the church. They cannot be exchanged for technological ones because the kingdom that Jesus talked about, he talked about agricultural metaphors all the time. When he came and he said what his society would be like, what his kingdom would be like, he constantly talked about trees and fields and seeds. And when we substitute those metaphors for technological ones, we lose the very meaning of the metaphor. We lose the very meaning of what Jesus was trying to say and what the psalmist was trying to say. See, this metaphor cannot be exchanged the field for the phone, for example, because this metaphor about a tree planted 
and chaff that withers away. These metaphors tell us that the life that withers is a gradual life. It's not you're in and you're out. It's a gradual descent. And this warning the psalmist gives us uh, was picked up by one of its earliest interpreters. One of the great geniuses of the Christian church was named Saint Augustine. He was a bishop from northern Africa, like modern day Algeria. And he interpreted all 150 psalms. And in his exposition, his, his detailed explanation of this first psalm, this is years and years ago, late 300s. He says, pay attention to the order of this psalm and the way the life gradually withers. Notice that the person in Psalm 1 walks first, walking in step with the wicked, and then stands in the way that sinners take, and then sits, walking and standing and sitting. This life is gradual, and the psalmist says, beware of the gradual descent into this withering life. Beware of keeping unhealthy company. Again, some of this language here has so much baggage in our culture, but it's a reason for us to more further interpret it and understand it. Psalm 1 is looking at foolish people, sinners, wicked people, and saying, be careful of being around unhealthy company. Perhaps this is a good reminder of two things. The first is this. This community covenant, the covenant community that, Mago, you all are stepping into, it is a community effort. Everything done in Christianity must be done together. When Jesus invites us into his kingdom, what is it? It's a nation, it's a society, it's a people, it's a group. Those who are living inside the same rhythms of grace and the psalmist is saying not everybody will. In fact, you won't all the time. You and I won't live in these rhythms faithfully all the time. Most of us will not Sabbath consistently. Most of us will not give our money consistently. And so, all the more reason to be connected into a community to encourage one another to do so. Most of us will be tempted to be following the capitalist forces of American desire for profit and prestige. Most of us will be tempted to put our kids to bed and open our laptops and work endlessly to make that extra money and to side hustle instead of resting. Many of us will try to hold on to our possessions and stack up wealth as much as possible instead of give it away. And because of those very real temptations that exist both in the church and outside of the church, we must beware of the unhealthy company that we can take and the unhealthy company we can be for other people. It's not just about other people out there that can damage your Christianity. It's about a way that can be insidious inside the hearts and lives of us where we become the very unhealthy company the psalmist is telling us to avoid. Beware of unhealthy company and beware of adopting devastating attitudes. Did you see that word mockers or some of your translations may have said scoffers, another very biblical word, kind of ancient. I don't know how much we use that word today. But that is an attitude word. That's a disposition you and I hold towards the world. It's a heart's temperament towards your surroundings. Scoffing and mocking, those are the primary dialects of the English internet right now. Puffed up, self-important, immovable, this arrogant and unchanging mind. But you know what, I've noticed this about myself. Scoffing is so sneaky. Mocking is so sneaky. 
It appears in seed form and gradually grows to infest your life like a weed. Sometimes it starts simply with your belief that you know better than somebody else. Scoffing and mocking begins with a roll of the eyes, a quick dismissal, a slight shaking of the head as you see your friend's vacation post. Oh, they're going on vacation again. That kind of attitude creeps up in all of us and it's been tempted once again and it's not something that just lives outside of the church. Scoffing and mocking has been something the church has attempted to adopt in order to speak the language of culture. But friends, we all know from experience you can say true things in a very arrogant manner and the church has been guilty of this for so many years, communicating true things in a manner that appears nothing like Jesus. Friends, if we communicate true things about Jesus Christ without the attitude of Jesus Christ, I'm afraid we're missing the message. And here sits this correction of beware of being in this seat of mockers. You know, I remember I sent a mentor of mine an article And I was like, what do you think about this? I was just kind of thinking about it. I was wanting his opinion about it. He said, Chris, I think there's so many true things in here, but just reading it, it doesn't sound like Jesus. It doesn't have his tone. And I thought, what a healthy way to view information and things we're reading and doctrine just because something's true. There's a person's posture that they may take that we could be tempted to take ourselves. That's a portrait of this withering life, but a life that lasts. The psalmist has a beautiful metaphor for a life that lasts. Verse two says, blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person Verse three says, is like a tree planted by streams of living water. What a beautiful, beautiful agricultural metaphor. And you see, just like the withering life is gradual, the righteous life is gradual as well. How long does it take to grow a tree? Again, I grew up in the city, I don't know. But I'm gonna guess, long. The righteous life is a gradual life. It takes time, but it begins with a meditation and a delight. Notice in verse two, delighting in the law of the Lord, meditating on his, on his law day and night. What is this law? We might think of law as, uh, you know, societal instruction, moral instruction. Certainly the early Jewish readers and writers of this song that they would sing in the, in the uh, congregation of the people of God in the Old Testament, they would have thought, of moral instruction, yes, certainly, but something all the more, because you know this Hebrew word is the Hebrew word Torah. And you might know the word Torah because that is a way we refer as Christians to the first five books of our Bible. It's called the Torah, the first five books. And yes, it certainly means, that word means instruction. And yes, certainly someone would have heard this Psalm and said, oh, their delight is in the law of the Lord. They would have thought about the 10 Commandments. Yes, they would have in in Exodus chapter 20, but they also would have thought about Exodus 1 through 19, the freedom of God's people out of slavery in Egypt. They would have thought about the great narratives of Genesis. They would have thought about the great tales of Numbers and the Levitical Code. They would have thought about it all. Another great interpreter of this psalm is not just St. Augustine, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you know Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was an opposing 
pastor and a political spy and a theologian against the Nazi regime in 1940s Germany. He was imprisoned for that and he wrote this tiny little commentary on the book of Psalms and he wrote this about this Psalm. Under law, he says, then it's to be understood this way, as the entire salvation act of God and the direction for a new life in obedience. Just stop right there. This is what we're meditating and delighting in. The entire salvation act of God and the direction for a new life in obedience. It is the birth of Christ in the, in the nativity and the Sermon on the Mount instructions given to us and the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. It's the whole gospel given to us. Just like it's the whole biblical narrative of creation and the fall and the rebellion of God's people, the redemption through Christ and the new creation to come. The whole thing takes into account the delight that we have in it. It's the entire salvation act of God. It is grace to know God's commands, Bonhoeffer says. So a life that lasts is one that's delighting and meditating in everything God has done, is doing, and will do. Well, this creates a slight issue, I think. Because if the righteous life is gradual and it begins with this kind of delight and meditation, it makes me think about the honest place in my life, which is I don't always wake up delighting in the law of the Lord. I don't naturally wake up desiring and meditating on God's law. What if I don't desire God like this all the time? I don't, I don't know about you. I, I wake up wanting all kinds of things. I'm a walking contradiction of discordant desires. And if we're honest, all of us are. Some of our minds right now are somewhere else. And I don't blame you. Some of us are constantly thinking about other things. But notice, I love the way the psalmist paints this. That delight and meditation go side by side. See, I used to read that verse, delights in the law of the Lord and meditates day and night, as sequential. Like, I delight first and then I'm meditating all the time because I'm just so delighting in God. But what if it was not so much sequential as it was cyclical? where one plays off of the other, that our desire drives our discipline to meditate day and night, and meditating day and night, our discipline drives our desire. I think that's more true of human development. What I truly desire, I discipline myself in, and what I discipline myself in, I find myself desiring. Like exercise or healthy eating, we know God works this way through human beings. And God gives both desire and will to discipline. He's at the center of it all. But I learned this um, first, kind of in a strange way maybe, through um, fellowship with those as a pastor through my, through my years in ministry. Um, fellowship with people who, who struggle with addiction. I, I know maybe some of you, that's part of your story. I know here at Imago you have refuge and these story groups, maybe some of our own stories are gonna come out. Um, and there are two communities that really taught me this. The first was I, I was a part of Celebrate Recovery and it, I, I was never addicted to any substances, but someone encouraged me when I was like very young Christian to go to one of these groups. And Celebrate Recovery, it's kinda like a 12-step program for Christians, um, and I, I just went because, like I said, I, I wasn't struggling with any addiction towards a substance, but I was broken. 
And someone encouraged me to go there. It was a season of my life where things were difficult, and um, I realized my relationship to my anger was very similar to my friend sitting across from me, their relationship with alcohol or drugs. Like my relationship to lust or my relationship to greed had very similar connections to my friends who were struggling with substance abuse. But here's what I learned from, from that community. That desire and discipline work hand in hand. That delighting in the law of the Lord and meditating on it day and night, they work hand in hand. My friends walking through sobriety would tell me, sometimes you desire to be sober and so you discipline yourself to be sober that day. But some days you're sober that day and you discipline yourself so that later the desires will change. And later when I was pastoring in the inner city of San Francisco, we were in this little church in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco and there's so much addiction and, and if you know that area of San Francisco, struggling with so much poverty and injustice and systemic stuff that goes back so long. But there is also just communities of broken people and that, that made discipleship difficult but beautiful because there I learned the same thing from my friends in my church. They taught me as a pastor that there are times where desire drives us and there's times where discipline does, but God works at either end. And as these things are happening, the desire, delighting in the law of the Lord, and the discipline, meditating on it day and night, that when those things are working together, something's produced in you. It's like God does an activity in your life that only he can do. He starts to make you something you could not be yourself. You know, it's like, some of you maybe have experienced this in marriage. Sometimes you stay married because of your desire. You're in love, and so you stay married. And other times, you're married, and then you figure out you're in love again. The desire and discipline are working back and forth, but something is created all along the way with sobriety or with marriage. A sober life is created, a flourishing life is created, or a marriage is built. And likewise, with righteousness, God gives you a righteous life as this process is happening. Fleming Rutledge puts it this way. She's an amazing preacher. She's in her 80s, and she wrote this. God's word and law is actually speaking or wording us into righteousness. That is what God's word is able to do as we're meditating on it. In the Old Testament, God's word is performative. It creates what it names. Well, what does it create? It creates righteousness in you, friends. As you and me are meditating and delighting in the law of the Lord in the entire salvation act of God, it's creating a tree, Psalm says, Psalms uh, 1-3 says. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields fruit in its season. Really cool, that Hebrew word for planted is the same word they use and it's often used as replanted or transplanted which gives me good news, which you might think, Chris, I wasn't planted by streams of living water. I wasn't planted there. I don't know if you know how I grew up. Well, so cool this word means both planted and replanted because God might have to replant you into those streams. He might have to put you back into those streams. This tree that's planted by streams of living water, it says it yields its fruit in its season. It yields its fruit in its season. Another reason to keep the agricultural metaphors of the kingdom of God, I told you the righteous life is gradual, but the righteous life is also a, a life of seasons. 
As gradual as the withering life is, righteousness is gradual as well, but it's also seasonal. I think for a lot of us, I'm tempted to just want like a grocery store Christianity. I once heard somebody say, I don't know who said this, but like um, the problem with the world today is that you can find a tomato at 2 a.m. in January. Like that's a problem. Somebody said that about capitalism or where we're at today. That's a problem that you can just constantly get, like right now we can go get strawberries. Like we shouldn't be able to. They don't grow here, you know? It's not natural. It's not sustainable. But we sometimes are tempted to think that's the way Christianity is. Shouldn't there be fruit bearing all the time? But notice the psalm says that actually the person who's planted by streams of living water, the the fruit is growing in its season. And it might not be the season for it to produce fruit, but fruit will come. It's just not the season right now for it to grow fruit. And there's even a temptation within me as a pastor to want to make every Sunday and every sermon like amazing. Like, oh, every sermon, oh, this Sunday's gonna be amazing. This Sunday's gonna be amazing. It's gonna be life changing. It's gonna be life changing. It just gets exhausting after a while. You know, at the end of the day, not every part of spiritual life is amazing. So much of it is difficult. So much of it is wintering. And yet, the psalmist, this is the promise, Imago. As you practice the rhythms of grace, fruit will produce in its season. Christianity is not so much a grocery store as it is a farm, as it is a tree that's planted by streams of living water. And some of you need to hear this today. Not bearing fruit or like producing some um, idea of righteousness in your life, not producing fruit, it's not necessarily, sometimes it is, but it's not necessarily a sign that you're disconnected from Jesus. It actually might be a sign that you are connected to him. You're just in a wintering season. You're in a difficult season where fruit is not producing. You see, the emphasis of the passage is not that there's this tree churning out fruit 24-7. It's that it's patiently but predictably producing something organic that God is doing in this person's life. And the emphasis is not on the fruit. The emphasis is on the roots. Where is this tree planted? To what is it connected to? Because this psalmist knows the same thing Jesus Christ knew when he taught this very simple, very profound teaching. A good tree produces good fruit. Where the roots go, the fruit comes. And so like a tree next to water, the only reason there is fruit is because of what it is connected to and from what sustenance it is receiving. A life that truly lasts is a life that is rooted in God through Christ. You know, the truth is, we talk about righteousness. All throughout the Bible, righteousness People are only righteous because God says they are or because of some relationship they have with him. Like Noah was righteous in Genesis because he, quote, walked with the Lord. He was connected to the Lord. Abraham had faith and it says that God saw the faith and he counted it to him as a righteous life. He was like, I'll credit that. That, that looks like righteousness. So, So I'll name it that. Actually, in Deuteronomy 9, you know, God tells the people of Israel emphatically, it is not because of their righteousness that he chose them. You know, righteousness, all throughout the Bible, people are righteous because they are connected to God. 
And I mentioned before Augustine, the great interpreter and North African bishop of this passage, he argues you see Jesus all through this text. He says when you look at this psalm and you see somebody standing in the way of sinners and sitting in the seat of mockers, who do you think about who stands in the way of sinners? You know, with the New Testament imagination, you start to think, wait a second, didn't Jesus stand in the way of sinners so that we wouldn't have to? Wait, wasn't he the one who didn't sit in the seat of mockers but sat beneath the seat of mockers as he was mocked to be crucified? Augustine says, yeah, and wasn't he the one who called himself the living water to the woman at the well in John 4? It's not a stretch to see Jesus Christ all over this psalm. It's actually a faithful interpretation to see this simple thing. God comes to us in Christ and literally stands in the way of sinners so we don't have to, comes to us to provide living waters so that our tree might be transplanted next to him, so that when we ourselves are the sinners and we are the ones who are the corrupted ones, he comes to make us right. You see, without God, without the triune God, without Jesus Christ, there is no righteousness. But with him, friends, all of us, mixed motives and all, strange backgrounds and all, all of us can be that tree that has been planted by streams of water. And so now, reading Psalm 1 forwards into the life of Christ, we see it with such greater clarity. It's the life that's connected to Christ that will grow and flourish into heaven's gardens. And it's the life disconnected from Christ that withers into oblivion. Friends, it's not about in or out, right and wrong. It's about flourishing and withering. He's trying to save your life. All of us live from somewhere. We all have a root system. All of us have a great premise upon which all of our ideas about life come. We root ourselves in philosophies and various ideas that we catch through our algorithms and family backgrounds of origins. And the invitation of this psalm is to transplant your root system into the triune God, to make him the entire premise upon which your life is built, to desire him and order your life accordingly. And from there, friends, a great promise arrives. You will bear fruit. You will be righteous. If you're thinking in Jesus' terms, you're thinking probably with me about John 15 now, where Jesus himself places his own self in this psalm in a unique way, where he says this, John 15, five. He says, I'm the vine, you are branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away, and here's our word, withers. Skipping down to verse 10. However, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, Jesus says, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Suddenly, the stress of religion can wash away as Jesus shows us the same thing Psalm 1 does. A life that lasts is a life that is rooted in him. Jesus, look at this, he puts himself in place of the law. 
He puts himself in place of the word. He becomes the way, he becomes the word, he becomes the instruction. And suddenly it now becomes about abiding and obeying. Notice what he says. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. This is the great news of practicing the rhythms of grace and the way that your amazing teaching team has been teaching these amazing practices has been simple. You practicing the rhythms of grace connects you to the author of grace, right? As you obey those commands, you abide. Jesus makes the promise plain. If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love. So we don't have to stress about, am I feeling God right now? Is he feeling close to me? Some emotional uh, temperature gauge. Suddenly we just go, am I walking in the rhythms of grace? Because if I am Jesus Christ himself, he said, I'm abiding in him. That's not my opinion, that's not my feeling, that's the promise from Jesus that I'm resting my life on. The rhythms of grace connect you to the author of grace. The hospitality you practice will connect you to Jesus who was the hospitable one who welcomed us when we were weak and sinful. The Sabbath that you celebrate will connect you to the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus, the God who rested on the seventh day. And the generosity you practice will connect you to Jesus, the generous one who gave his life. I told you at the start of this, Psalm 1 has a promise and it's got a choice. The promise of blessing for those who choose righteousness, the great surprise of Christianity, the great shock of it all is that you and I do not choose righteousness by choosing a kind of philosophy or a set of ideas. We don't choose Christian ideas versus secular ideas or Christian philosophical thinking and that leads to a better life. We choose a person. We choose a living instruction, a living word, a risen Jesus who's not dead but waits for you on the outsides of these doors and the insides of these doors. He's here with us now fellowshipping with us and wanting to meet with you. And those of you who are here to receive him, receive him. Some of you are planted by streams of living water. You've connected your life and built your root system on Jesus. May this psalm give you the encouragement that you're headed in the right direction with God. You are blessed. And for those of you that say, it's time to transplant those roots and to put them into this place. I say, come to Christ. Come to Jesus. Jesus is the one who makes us righteous and who makes us live a life that will last into heaven's gardens, like a branch connected to a vine, like a tree planted by streams of water. Life in God is one that is connected to Christ through practicing his rhythms and commands. Imago, you are headed with God in the right direction. You're blessed, which is why 111 Psalms later, this is what the psalmist writes about the righteous life. Surely, the righteous, the flourishing life, the good and flourishing life, they'll never be shaken. They will be remembered forever. They will have no fear of bad news. Their hearts are steadfast, trusting the Lord. Their hearts are secure. They will have no fear. Why are the righteous lasting and remembered forever? Why are their hearts secure? Not because of who they are, but because of who they are connected to because they're trusting in the Lord, because they're connected to the source of all righteousness. And that's what we're here to do at the tables today, friends. Communion.
is the time that Christians throughout centuries have connected themselves back to the source. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take this, all of you, and eat of it. This is my body broken for you. And then the same way he took the cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to his friends and he says, this is my blood the blood of the new and everlasting covenant shed for you and for all so that sins may be forgiven. Do this, he said, in the memory of me. Meditate on this day and night. Delight yourself in this instruction and in this law because in this practice, you'll meet me and find your root system in a place where life can flourish. Let me pray for you. Father, we need you. We confess our desperation before you plainly, honestly, and freely. There's no pretense uh, here. We are desperate people. We come hungry, we come weak, we come tired. Oh, but we come encouraged by your word that says there's living water to be found. There is new blood to be given. There's a broken bread that's a broken body so that our broken bodies can find fellowship with yours. Oh Lord, may you do a work through your Holy Spirit that only you can do. We're counting on it. That as we receive this communion and receive prayer together, Lord, there might be something that happens to us. Yeah, I don't wanna... Um, I don't wanna move past this moment without acknowledging, Lord, some of us could leave communion completely differently. And I pray that your spirit would be generous to do that for some of us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.